turn to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm chapter 1. Uh, again, another wonderful Sunday school lesson, and afterwards, Sean and I were talking. I don't know, where's Sean? Oh, there, in the back. Um, we're talking, and he, he brought up a very interesting point about the theme that we've been going over this last year, that Christ is better, and I, I think this is kind of what you were saying, and we said many things, but Christ is better than your better. And I thought that is so interesting, because, you know, we kind of put forth things that we think are good, or good ideas, or our best efforts, or whatever, but Christ is better than our better. So I don't have a, I don't have a title for this message, because... Um, we're just going through Psalm chapter 1, but if you'll keep that in the back of your mind, Christ is better than your better. And so we could trust him, even when we think um, we've exhausted everything, Christ is still better than our better. So Psalm 1, we're going to go ahead and read all of the verses, all six, not very many, but I thought this would be a, a, just a good, uh, a good light, refreshing Psalm. My intention for this, this morning's message was to be short and sweet on purpose because I have not been doing the table time or the table talk because I just, I do content overload. I just kind of go too long and too exhaustive, uh, perhaps. And I, and I always feel bad because I know the Korean church is going to be coming in and um, I, I don't want to uh, abuse our time agreement that we have with them. So today, on purpose, I want to kind of condense it. Um, there's going to be a lot here, but I want to give time for, for us as a church to be able to dialogue and to have some exchange. Blessed is the man and woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So we have walking standing and sitting. Kind of, kind of the theme of the book of Ephesians, right? It's that same sort of message in the book of Ephesians as well. In fact, Watchman Nee wrote a book uh, like Walk, Sit, Stand, based on Ephesians. Verse 2, but there his, her delight is in the law of the Lord, the Bible, God's word, and his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does or she does shall, shall prosper. The ungodly, those that are without Christ in them, are not so, but are like the chaff, um, you know, the, like the unprofitable part of the harvest, the, the, the weed part, so to speak, and the wind drives them away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray together, and then we'll get into this Psalm chapter 1. Probably very familiar, um, but we'll just look at some thoughts. And then what I'm looking forward to is to hear your thoughts about this and other passages um, in God's word. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you'd guide us, minister to us. I thank you for all that was done already this morning. I pray for tonight our fellowship, but I pray for our fellowship today as well this morning, that we just have a good exchange, that we would, we would hear the voice of the Lord through 
the people that make up your church, the body. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd um, just minister today and teach us and uh, comfort us. And um, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never found yourself reading the Psalms, um, you would probably be greatly encouraged if and when you do. Have you ever found yourself just kind of like, well, I've read that before, I've read this, I've read that, but have you ever found yourself in a season in your Christian walk where you just feel hungry for the Psalms? You ever, has anyone felt like that? Where you're, you're, I love the Psalms because it's a collection of lyrical, poetical Hebrew songs, they're actual songs, written primarily by David, the man after God's own heart, um, but it's often called the Book of Praises, right? They were penned and inspired about a thousand years before Christ's birth, just to kind of, so Jesus 2,000 years ago, the Psalms 3,000 years ago. So they're ancient songs, but in these songs, this collection of praises, so to speak, we have this, this, um, undiluted, raw uh, thoughts coming out onto paper inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, through primarily the psalmist David as um, he probably rocked a fender, maybe a Gibson, I don't know, Joe. But he was just out and about and connecting with God and writing these, um, these songs or these outpourings of his heart. So they're raw, unpolished, unsugar-coated thoughts concerning real-life issues and how our relationship with God can look when we're honest and authentic in our walk with the Lord. I think early in my Christian walk, I avoided the Psalms. I thought they were like cute, cuddly, Christian Hallmark card type things, you know? Um, sentimental thoughts for troubled souls, that's what I thought. I wanted more of the definitive apologetic doctrines to know and expound upon. Uh, I thought eschatology and knowing the chronology of the end times was where the real meat was and the Psalms was the milk. You ever felt like that a little bit? I got a t-shirt in Athens, Greece one time and it was a quote by Socrates and it said right on, I don't know where that shirt is, I, I think I lost it um, or my wife Maybe got rid of it or something. I don't know. Maybe she didn't know. Maybe she put it away for me somewhere in a special spot. But the shirt, <laughs> the shirt says, the more I know, the more I know how much I don't know. Socrates. The more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. I felt like that through uh, my master's program Incidentally, thank you, princes, for they had to, I had to do a family therapy session and I had to do a mock um, session. And uh, they hopped in because I needed a family of four. And so I thank you for that. Uh, all of them, all three of them are here, were on the video. And I said, you're gonna be famous, you're gonna be famous, please do this. Um, but according to HIPAA laws and everything that was confidential, it was only with me and some professors and then you had to delete it and discard it. Uh, but they did a good job. Um, but in that program, you know, learning clinical psychology, psychotherapy, and stuff like that, you're like, man, the more, the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't really know. People are complex. Your soul, your psyche, it's super complex. Um, well, when you come to the Psalms, you know, they're chalked with untapped depth 
And it's a limitless wellspring of knowledge and understanding of God himself. And so I guess for me, the longer I walk with Christ, the more I find myself feeding and drinking from these green pastures and still waters. I think it's a quote, Michael, um, by Gill. It'll be up on the screen. The whole book, Psalms, is a rich mine of grace and evangelical truths, and is a large fund of spiritual experience, and is abundantly suited uh, to every case, state, and condition that the Church of Christ or particular believers are in at any time. That's how valuable these psalms are. Now, we always interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, and the difficult passages in light of the uh, the easy-to-be-understood passages, so in the Old Testament, it was Christ concealed, and in the New Testament, it's Christ revealed. And throughout it all, it's always been salvation is by grace through faith. But there's scores and scores of psalms that prophetically foretold um, the many aspects of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, the Bible says, but we must have spiritual spectacles, in other words, to look at all the scripture through the lens of Jesus. It's his story, history, it's his story. It's about the God-man and the man of God coming to reveal himself so we could enter into a relationship with him. So from that kind of lens, uh, you'll see this passage in John chapter 5. Jesus said this, he said, You search the scriptures, Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews, religious people, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. That's a very, 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 very important aspect of Jesus. Because we don't have a relationship with the word of God. We have a relationship with the God of the word, right? Like, I, I, I love the Bible because it reveals to me Jesus. But this is, this is more like a signpost. It's more like, um, hey, uh, you know, Huntington Beach, Five miles, if you read the sign, <laughs> it points you. Then when you get to the destination, you don't, you don't have a relationship with the signpost, so you have a relationship with the destination. And so Jesus is saying, all the scriptures, their purpose was to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a relationship with the living word. And I thank God for the written word, but it was all designed to point me to the living word. Look at this next passage. Jesus rose from the dead, and he said, at beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expanded on them, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so the Bible is really like, like God's autobiography, where he, he was writing things about himself. And in particular, in the Psalms, when you go through the 150 Psalms that are recorded in the Bible, you could start to see, oh, there's Jesus, oh, there's Jesus, oh, there's Jesus. And as David was writing these things, they, you know, they will pierce my hands and my feet. He might have not known really what he was writing in a song or uh, maybe it rhymed in Hebrew for him. I don't know. But as he's writing these things and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll betray me for 30 pieces of silver and all the Psalms that are so prophetic, he'll, as he's penning these things, um, They were all pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so Jesus then, a thousand years after these psalms were written, look at, after he rose from the dead, look at this next passage. Luke 24, 44. Now he's 
He's with the disciples. He's risen from the dead. They doubted all these things. And then he was teaching them. And he said, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was still with you, that all things uh, must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So the first point I'd like to make is, well, it's, it's point one, but there's three subpoints: are walking, are standing, and are sitting. So back in Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So walking ungodly, simply put, it's a person living without the life of God. And the standing sinner is the sinner is one who has put to action their ungodliness. And the sitting scoffer in the progression of ungodliness is a life full of sinfulness uh, that will lead to becoming an ungodly, sinful scoffer who sits and mocks God, his word, his church, his people, and his will. Wasn't that an interesting video about college students and kind of where, where the culture's at when they think about God? And I, I appreciate their candor, their honesty. Um, I just think it's just very interesting where people are at uh, with God. And you, you think about it. Think about this verse. Blessed is the person that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You know, in our educational system, uh, especially at the collegiate level, um, you know, young minds are impressionable. They're just out of high school. They're looking for direction. They're wondering, you know, a lot of times as a youth pastor, too, you would think like, okay, the kids turn 18, they get their driver's license, and now they're too cool for Sunday school, right? <laughs> they leave the home. They leave the church. A lot of times that happens. And then they go to, say, like a, an institution of higher learning, and then there's some clever professor that wants to talk them out of their faith, Right? And I just think it's interesting that if you, if you walk with the ungodly or if you sit in the counsel of those that are without God, the, those that mock God, those that ridicule God, those that have no faith in God, um, as Brian said in Sunday school, garbage in, garbage out. There's a lot of people that have not come out of college with their faith in Christ. And uh, not to belittle it, but there's some people that have, right? And there's some people that has increased their faith. But what advice and wisdom and guidance do we tap into? When I was a youth pastor many years ago, I would ask the kids uh, in the youth group, who's inspiring the one who is now inspiring you? Who's inspiring the one who's now inspiring you? you. And that came to me. Um, this isn't, I'm not saying this, you guys won't even know who these people are really. Maybe you will, maybe you want to, it's not important. But there was a person that would stay with me and my friend in this house that we were staying at. And this person was uh, married to pretty famous uh, rock and roll, um, uh, international actually, and they went to our school, and, um, but they were always in and out of rehab for heroin. Heroin, for some reason, is this, this band's drug of choice. And I remember um, this person 
coming out of rehab and coming back to our place, and they were telling me about another band member, which you may or may not know, um, that they would do heroin, and then after, I'd never done the heroin at all, but um, this person would do it in the place where I was staying, and I would tell them not to. I was just trying to become a Christian. I was always reading the Bible, and they'd ask me, well, what are you reading? And I would say the Bible, and I don't really understand it, but I'm, I want to be a Christian. I just don't know how. And I, this person was telling me that they would take blood out of the syringe, and they would, they would squirt it on a blank canvas, and they would, they're trying to make art under the influence of um, heroin. And this drug-induced art project became the backdrop of a, of a concert that was called Lollapalooza in its beginning. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lollapalooza. And people would spend, I don't know how much money to, for the tickets, and they would spend the money and they would go to this concert and you know, the, again, it's the whole lifestyle and the culture. And in the backdrop, right, we have Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's our backdrop. But their backdrop was this, was this canvas that was um, done by the blood of these two famous people. Um, and they blew it up and they made it the backdrop because they thought it was artsy and creative. And so... What I was learning was who's inspiring the one that's inspiring you? Because you go there, you pay the money, and you're like, yeah, rock on, you know? And without knowledge, there's a source of inspiration that's now, that's now coming down to the masses on a mass, a mass scale and they don't even understand the source of its inspiration. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Like you listen to a song, you watch a movie, you read a book, someone's inspired that person that's now inspiring you. All I'm, do, all I'm doing is trying to backtrace. Where, where is that source of inspiration coming from? Where is that coming from? Well, we know from the Bible it, the source of inspiration when David's writing these songs is not heroin, right? It's not drugs. It's the Holy Spirit. But when you sit in the seat uh, where you're walking with ungodly people and you're standing uh, with sinners and you're sitting with the scoffer, you're gonna get in, you're gonna get inspired. So ask yourself, who's inspired? Who's inspired the one that's now inspiring you? And don't think that you're exempt, and I won't think that I'm exempt, because their source of inspiration will, uh, will affect us, whether we want it to or not. Verse number two of Psalms 1. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law they do meditate day and night. In other words, their will, their desire, their affection, their motive, everything in their heart and every moving principle in their soul are on the side of God and his truth. Their whole triadic being, in other words, is solically fixed on their faith, uh, and they're spiritually bent continuously towards God, and they physically use their body and all that they do to the glory of God. It's a pretty weighty statement, if you think about it. Pretty high and lofty, if you think about it. And I'm not standing up here saying that that's me at all. I'm just saying 
He's inspired and he's saying the person that doesn't sit and walk and stand with these people that are contrary to God, the antithesis is that they're delighting in God and his word and who he is. So I just want to bring this out. It says that he delights in the law of the Lord. Since we're no longer under the Old Testament Mosaic law, we don't fall under the conditionality and the condemnation of something Jesus completely fulfilled on our behalf. But that doesn't mean that we're lawless. It just means that we live under a higher law, a spiritual law. right? Just because we say that we're not under the law, it doesn't mean that we're lawless. It doesn't mean that. But what this does mean is we don't have a relationship with a set of rules written on rocks, right? Because the old covenant was written on stone. We don't have a relationship uh, with stones and with rocks. We have a relationship uh, with a living Lord, the Lord of the law, who placed his holy, righteous life within our lives, and he's in union with us. Now, we can delight in that we can learn from the law, but we don't live under the law. We live under the Lord. Does that make sense? I'm going to say that again. We can delight in that we can learn from the law, but we don't live under the law. We live under the Lord. What would you rather live under, the law or the Lord? Amen. Yeah. So just because we're not under uh, the law, but under grace, it doesn't give us an excuse to live disgraceful. Look at some verses on this topic. Romans 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you, lordship, rulership, control over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. God forbid. And you, you know, Paul has to rhetorically answer that question because as, a, as an evangelist of the law before he was saved, he went around putting people under the law, putting people under the law, reminding them and, and preaching the law. And um, now that he's not under the law and he's preaching Jesus, the Lord of the law, the one who fulfilled the whole law, and now when he's preaching, you're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works of the law, uh, so anyone should brag or boast. Now that he's preaching, it's nothing you could do, it's all that Jesus did, you can't keep the law. Um, In fact, everyone's broken the law, everyone's sinned, there's none good, no, not one. After he's, he's teaching that message, he knows what people are going to say. Okay, Paul, so if you're, te- if you're teaching that we're not under the law of Moses and there's, there's no like, uh, boundaries keeping us, does that mean that we could just sin? And he, and he said, certainly not. God forbid. That's not what the message... It doesn't mean that you're lawless. It just means that you live under a different... System, you live under the Savior, not a system. You live under the Lord, not under the law. And furthermore, the law was external and the Lord is internal. What do you think is going to be a better guide? Something external or someone internal? Look at Romans 7, 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Romans 8.2. Brian brought out Romans 8.1 in Sunday school. The very next verse says this, For the law of the Spirit of life, of the life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And then Galatians 
Right after he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says this, but if you were led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And remember, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new law. I'm going to give you a new commandment. And does anyone know what that is? Summarized in one word. Love. And it manifests in two directions. Love God and love each other. And he says, by this is the whole, everything hangs on that. It's the pinnacle. It's the apex. It's the zenith. It's the top. It's what Jesus came to model, to demonstrate, and to impart to us and to pass along. If you do these things, if you truly love God and you truly love each other, it will almost look like you're keeping the law because if I love you, I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to kill you. If I love the Lord, I'm not going to avoid church. Uh, I'm not going to use his name in vain. And so love is the fulfilling of the law. But here's my question for us, and it's really a question for me. Who or what do we delight in? So we're free from the law, but all that means is that we're free to serve the Lord and to love the Lord. Because if we're not always looking at ourselves and what we're, what we're accomplishing and what we're not accomplishing, we're actually free from that, like, uh, that uh, self-improvement project that we're always so concerned about. When we're free from that, are we failing and are we passing and how are we doing? What's the grade? What's the metric? If we're free from that performance trap, we're now free to love the Lord and to love each other. So who or what do we delight in? We're free from condemnation. We're free from guilt that the law brings so that we can be free to delight in the Lord uh, and him alone. Our freedom was free to us, but it cost Jesus his life. And because of his love and his grace, we of all people have come to the Lord, uh, living in us and with us. We have much to delight about. For example, look at the psalm. Oh, that's weird how that overlapped. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. This almost sounds too good to be true, right? (laughs) Like, is God setting me up? In the new covenant, what we know, what they didn't have in the old covenant, because in Psalm 51, he says, creating me a clean heart, right? We don't, that's not our prayer. We have a clean heart. This was the prophecies of the old covenant that God says, I will come, I will take out your old stony heart and I'll give you a heart and my spirit and I'll renew myself in you. So, In our heart, we have these new righteous desires. So if you you were to say, for example, it's my desire to see college-age people to know the truth of the gospel and to, to know that God loves them, and that if they trust in Jesus, that he rose from the dead, that they put their faith in him, that they could have that free gift of eternal life and have that relationship with him. That that desire to do that, that that comes from your new heart. That comes from that place where God has put these new desires. You can trust these desires because God has given you um, a new heart. It's been said, what gets our attention gets us. Have you ever heard that? What gets your attention gets you. 
And in Sunday school, we were going in that direction, and I, I think Brian will, will get there. Uh, we only got through like a page of a three-page uh, Sunday school or four pages of Sunday school content. Um, and he may or may not be getting to this point, but I want to bring this up as well. Because the battlefield of the mind and our preoccupations from Christ are probably um, more severe in our day than, than ever before. You realize there's a thing called algorithmic discrimination? <laughs> I'm not going to go off on this. You guys are probably so sick of me talking about this. But you're right. Our lives are so curated by artificial intelligence. I mean, does anyone have Netflix in here? Netflix. Um, so y you pick a couple kung fu movies, right? You go to turn on Netflix the next time, all the suggestions are kung fu, right? They, they, they think they got you figured. That's, a, that's an algorithm. That's a, your social media is an algorithm. Your shopping is an algorithm. You're, they don't, there's no one thinking like, hey, Joe's, you know, Joe likes golf, and so I'm just going to... I know Joe because I'm following him around. And no, they have bots that do all that dirty work. They already know Joe. They know he likes guitars and they know he likes golf. And so they're going to curate, because we don't get newspapers and magazines anymore. And when no one really watches regular TV with commercials, it's all digitized. And so they know the new paradigm for marketing has to be curated specifically based on information. So all I'm saying is like, there's algorithmic discrimination. They could spin this however they want. And so in our day, specifically our day, the battlefield of the mind is really more crucial than it's ever been. Because we're, we're, we're fighting against programs and algorithms and bots and artificial intelligence that, uh, sure, a, a human programmed it, but once that's set into motion, it could, it could be discriminatory in an exponential way, and you wouldn't even know it. Our whole culture is polarized based off of this sort of concept. Polarized. Vax or no vax, red or blue, um, you know, Ukraine or Russia. We're, we've all been like polarized. Um, but what I'm saying is this. To be aware of that is one thing. To apply this verse is another thing. Look at this 2 Corinthians passage. It'll be familiar to you. For though we walk in the flesh, our body, we do not war according to the flesh. It's really not, a, it's not, it's not me against you. It's not me against the, the liberals and the left-wingers. It's not me against them. It's not you against them or you against the right-wingers. It's not, it's not you against them. That's not the battle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal physical, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. These thoughts, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought, that's the battle, your thought life, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Strongholds, spiritual battles, the battlefield of the mind, right? So, the heart of David, a man after God's own heart, was fixed in his faith and his love and his relationship with the Lord, knowing that God alone <clears throat> was enough and desirable. 
We, we touched on this before, but tribulation will often uh, bring desperation, and desperation, if allowed, can usher us into a deeper revelation. I want to I make this point. So, considering King David is the author of uh, this psalm, and many of these, the 150, uh, he wrote the majority of them, but when you think about the life of David, when things were fine in the kingdom, David got his eyes off of Christ and then on to a woman that was not his wife, right? But oftentimes in the Psalms, David was running for his life. He was hiding and dodging um, his persecutors, uh, and he would then look to God as his shield, as his bow, as his helmet, as his breastplate of righteousness, uh, as his hedge of defense, as his defender, as his protection and protector, as his supply and his supplier. So it was in these times that David was, um, you know, when things weren't so easy peasy and lazy and cheesy, right? It was in the times where he was on the run that he would, out of these moments of desperation, he would have these moments of revelation, Kind of like what, what Sunday school was about, a little bit. It was, it was during these times of despair that he would, he would have, basically when, when God was all that he had, because he didn't have any other resources, he would then find out God was really all that he needed all along. But it's in the distracting moments where everything's fine and everything's okay and my bank account's full and, my, and all the kids' health is fine and all the bills are paid and why do I need to trust God? And all I'm saying is it's not wrong to have all those things, but I think when we're talking about this point is that his delight was in the Lord. His delight was in the Lord. And so trials and tribulations are often escorts then to lead us into this divine dependency on God um, as our need meter. Look at Psalm 73. I actually wrote a song on guitar based off this psalm, and Chloe and I used to sing it uh, in church. Whom have, every time I read it, I think about the chords that I wrote. Um, I didn't write this, and I didn't make up the guitar. I just arranged it. But this verse is so powerful. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. How do you get to that place? Where that, that verse is not just a song, it's not just a Hallmark card, right? But it's a reality. Whom have I? See, this is the... When Christ is all that I have, Christ is all that I need. But he didn't get to that place when his kingdom was established and he's sitting on his patio with his feet up and he's got wine, women, and song. He's not saying that then. He's saying it in desperation that led him to the revelation. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. And this psalm, you guys know, uh, I think Amy, Amy Grunt, or Amy Grant, <laughs> as the deer pants for you know this. We've we've sing this song probably in, in in church here a dozen times. As the deer pants, this desperation for the water brooks. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
He's writing this from a place of desperation. He's being chased. He's living not on the top of the palace, but in caves for fear of his life because there's been a hit out put out on his life and he's being chased and, and there people are trying to assassinate him. He doesn't know who he could trust. He doesn't know um, who's a loyal friend. He doesn't know any of these things. And when he writes stuff about, you know, everyone's despising and rejecting me and all that kind of stuff, when it, he doesn't, out of, out of this desperation, he's writing revelation that Jesus would later say, these were written about me. And so very useful stuff comes from this. But David's saying, just as a deer is being hunted and it's panting for its life, and if it doesn't stop to drink water, it's going to die of thirst and starvation, but it's being hunted all the time. He's saying, and from that same premise, do I thirst for God? I could read this, but I can't really say it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's easy to read. Not so easy to relate to, but it's true. People actually get to the place as a deer in desperation running for its life, and it just needs to stop to get some water. As refreshing as that water is to the deer, so my soul thirsts for the living God. That's David's attitude. Here's Peter's attitude. John chapter 6. Remember, Jesus fed the multitude. They came to him and they said, what must we do that work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he sent. And then he says, you, you got you to gotta have me as your relationship. He's putting himself as the, the, the pinnacle of this whole story. Um, and then every, well, it goes from 5,000 down to 12 based on one message. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? And then Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom? Not where, not what. He says, to who can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's Peter's attitude. David's attitude is like the deer. He said, whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth besides you. Peter's attitude is, where, who, who can we go to? Who, who are we going to Who can we turn to? You are eternal life, and you have the words of eternal life. Here's Paul's attitude. Remember, he used to preach the law, but now he's preaching the Lord. In Philippians 3, he says, But what things were gained to me, these things have I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things for loss, for the excellency and the knowledge of uh, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He went from um, Israel's hero to Israel's zero, remember? <laughs> And he said, I count them all but rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, self-righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him, know Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Here's a really interesting one. Look at Habakkuk's attitude. This is a really interesting one because he's talking about circumstantial um, faith. This one, I think I caught this because I read on the bottom of, a, of an In-N-Out Fry thing where it, it made a reference to an obscure minor prophet. And then um, I'm like, I don't know that verse. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they put that verse on there? It's like John 3.16. What, what are you guys up to in the corporate side of things? <laughs> but check this verse out in Habakkuk. He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, 
nor the fruit beyond the vines. Though the labor of the olive um, may, fa may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be, talk about supply chain issues and inflation, right? Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. I think that's worth admission today. That's just a, where did this verse come from? Where has this been all my life, right? Do you feel like that? I ain't got no blossoms, I ain't got no vines, I ain't got no olives. <laughs> the flock is cut off. Where are my herds? <laughs> Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord, and I will joy in the God of my salvation. It's again, like, kind of like David, when it's all gone, and all I have is Jesus, Jesus is enough. God's got it, yo. 